Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. I am glad you could join me on this one because we're going to be speaking with Steve Penny. Now, I got to know Steve more than a year ago, I guess. He came for some startup advice, and I've kind of been tracking his progress since. So in this interview, we talk about his role in designing buildings, and it's really quite fascinating. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. I mean, as engineers, we kind of fall into the trap of, of thinking we know the answer before we've even asked the question. Right. And we also tend to think that you know we have to we have to build this mechanical system or this electrical system, mm-hmm. and don't really look at the bigger picture. Don't look back, step back, and say, how's this building going to work? Mm-hmm. You know, how are they going to use it? What's the minimum requirements we need to meet to make sure it achieves what they want to do inside the space? Mm. And then start designing the systems. Mm. Now, I know you're going to enjoy this, so we're going to get into it. If you do, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes as well, because we're at almost 150 and just hit 50,000 listens across all of them. And to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, why not hit subscribe? Now, let's get into this conversation with Steve. All right. So it's a pleasure to welcome Steve Penny to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. Um, what we do on the podcast is we talk about what people are doing now. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of seen your business grow from the beginning, haven't you, I? You have, yes. <laughs> a, a year yes. ago or a bit more, um, yeah. we were talking about it and what you were going to be doing. And I'd love to unpack um, your business and, and how you're out in the marketplace. Okay. Um, but also, I love to unpack where people are from because yep. I think it helps add the color and the story of how you ended up where you are today. Okay. So, if we could just start and just think back to your childhood and just tell us a bit it's about quite a where. a long time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yep. Yeah. Um, so, just, yeah, okay. just where you're from because you're obviously not from New Zealand originally. No, I'm so not. No. I'm, I where have, was your home? Yeah, I was actually born in a place called Billericay in Essex. Okay. Um, I lived most of my early childhood in a place called Wickford, which is just a, a short distance away from Billericay, um, and probably grew up till I was about 16, 17, around that area. Um, you know, and is that, um, how far away from London would that be? Is it? Oh, it's probably about 25 miles away from mm-hmm. London. So it's kind of the commuter belt, I'd say, around, around the southeast of England. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, Wickford's claim to fame is it's in the Doomsday Book, that um, the census that was done after um, Hastings. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's kind of there's a little page it's in, been in there the town centre. Been then. around for a while. <laughs> it's about I think the, the town itself is, is a couple of thousand years in right. that location. Um, wow. It's quite on the fall of a river, named hence the name. Uh-huh. Um, so it's got quite a lot of history, I guess, from that perspective. Yeah. Um, and had yeah. your family been from that town for a long um, time, or? Not or probably my parents' generation was the first generation to, mm-hmm. to be in Wickford. Mm-hmm. Um, they originally my mum's family and my dad's family both were from London, mm-hmm. um, but my my parents and my uh, dad's brothers and sisters all seem to sort of gravitate towards Wickford, and mm-hmm. most of them are still there. Right, um, and then all of my cousins are still there as well. So it's kind of a, it's kind of where, it's where we're from. The it's the spot yeah. for the family. I'm, <laughs> I like that, to say, yeah, yeah. I say I like to say that's where I'm from, but I, I mean I, I'm kind of glad that I'm not there anymore. I think it's quite, a, it's quite an enclosed uh-huh. place. You know, they're very sort of focused inwards. They don't really look out much, mm. and kind of keep to themselves. So it's kind of yeah. So it's kind of I'm glad I've moved around and saw more of the world. Right. To yeah. Be fair. Yeah, interesting. And the reason that they'd moved there, you mentioned sort of the 
the belt around London. Yep. Was that sort of a post-war thing that they moved to, uh, to get kind out of, of the yeah, city? I think or? it was a little bit to do with the post-war. I mean, there's there's a town near to where I, where I grew up called Basildon that was actually built post-war. Okay. And it was built to for uh, people from the east end of London that had been displaced because of the bombings um, for somewhere to move to. Yeah. And it kind of became the, a commuter belt as a result of that. I don't really think people commuted prior to World War Two, mm. but since then it's become quite a common thing to live somewhere and work somewhere else. Yeah, and, and that around London certainly it's very expensive to live in London. So I think people want to live in a nicer house; they mm. have to move out of town. Yeah, and it kind of the towns around London have grown up as a result of that. And there's quite I mean, London's now a massive sprawling space. You know, yeah. it, it, it's very difficult to see where the edges are, to be honest. Yeah, um, and but Wickford is kind of just off the edge of that that big metropolis. I would yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah, my wife's from England, so yep. she grew up in Hertford. Okay. Which yep. isn't that far away, I don't think. It's in Hertfordshire. So Hertfordshire. I lived yeah. in I lived in a place called Royston for a short while, um, okay. which is probably about twenty or so miles away from Hertford, so right. kind of on yeah, the on the north know. side of London. Yeah. 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 Yep. Oh that's interesting. Yep. But you mentioned that um you kind of look back and you're glad that you left. You yes. had a big bit if we trace it back to your childhood, is that yep. something that you knew you wanted to get away and explore the world, or, oh. or how would you describe yourself as a young, a young person? I, I was, I, I, when I was young, I was, I was actually incredibly painfully shy. Right. Um, I found it very difficult to socialise with people, and I kind of kept myself to myself pretty much through my all of my school years mm-hmm. up to the end of senior school, which would have been about fifteen or sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, had a very small group of acquaintances, not really any friends. Um, and I found it quite difficult to make friends, um, and I, I don't know quite what happened at the age of 16, but at the age of 16, I decided that I didn't want to be like that anymore. Right. Um, I, my my dad was um, very strong, had a very strong work ethic, and I had no idea what I wanted to do for a job, so he, he said to me, well, I know what you're going to do, and he got me a job working for uh, a consulting engineering company that he worked for. Hmm. Uh, as going in as an apprentice at the age of 16 so I was still very green and still very much a child um, and listened to what my dad said and he said this is what I needed to do so I went and did it yeah so is that <laughs> leaving school early then to go well, and do that well I had left before A level so the UK okay. education system at the there's time two years, isn't there's, it, there's two years there's two years for A levels yeah. and then you normally you would go on to university after that yeah I'd, I'd finished my um, what they were they were CSEs and, and O levels at the time right um, at the age of 16 and the opportunity was either to go back to school and do more A-levels but I hadn't really got any clue what I wanted to do so mm. it was difficult to decide which subjects subjects to choose um, or go and get a job mm. which was kind of the normal sort of two choices that you had at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was insistent that I needed to start paying my own way I guess as much as anything else yeah um so got me this opportunity to to go and get this um, job as as an apprentice engineer working in this consultancy up in London Mm -hmm. um and I've been doing it ever since which is now what 35 years yeah it's been uh, it's become it's certainly become a career yeah I don't think it started that way but it certainly became yeah very much a career for me Yeah, interesting. So do you remember the conversation with your father? Like, is it a vivid memory of, son, this is what you should well, do? I, or? Not particularly. The bit, the bit, I guess the bit I remember about it actually is, is kind of funny is that um, he actually took me on a shopping trip, which is probably the first time that we ever went on a shopping trip together mm-hmm. to buy my first suit. Because ah. after I'd, after I'd got the job, right. I needed to wear a suit and a shirt and tie. That was kind of the, the mode that you had to be in uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he took me out shopping to buy my first suit, and I remember that quite vividly. It was kind of a nice. It was a nice day uh, spending with my dad. My dad was a, is still is a very hard working man. Um, didn't spend a lot of time 
not working mm-hmm. you know, even when he was at the weekends he was always doing something on the house or so he never really relaxed mm. so actually getting some time with him when he wasn't doing something was, was kind of a, a you know an exciting thing for me yeah right. um, and it was quite yeah it was it was a nice day i really enjoyed that day yeah um i remember the first day i started work it was august the 13th and 1984 Hmm. Which is, you know, I still remember that day, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also remember my starting salary, which was pitiful when I look back on it now. I earned £2,338 a year right. as my starting salary, so less wow. than £200 a month. Wow. Which is, yeah. <laughs> but you had to start somewhere, huh? Yeah, actually, I had to start. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I didn't have to, it wasn't difficult to get the job. My dad was very well thought of in the place that he, because you know, he wasn't actually an employee, he was a, a subcontractor for them, so he oh, did okay. some work for them. Yeah. Um, but they respected him, and you know, I got in because of that, really. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that at the beginning you didn't think that would be sort of your career. Oh, well, I, is yeah, that, I didn't is know. That, I was just trying it, really. I yeah. didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I, it's... Uh, I was only 16. I was still a very young person. I hadn't really got a, f- a clear idea of my future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was it was going to earn me some money, and money seemed like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of money, admittedly, but <laughs> more than I was earning as not more having a job. More than zero before. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and it just, you know, it just seemed like it would be, uh, you know, a worthwhile experience as well. Mm. You know, it meant that I had to commute, so my commute into work was about an hour and a half each way from home because uh-huh. it was train and and underground as well. Right. Um, so it's quite made the days quite long because the start I had to be in office by in the office by about eight thirty in the morning. Right. And finished at about five or five thirty in the evening, and then I had the hour and a half on the end of each yeah. part of that day. Yeah. So it makes for a very long day. It does, I'm doesn't it? Of, yeah. Bit of bit different to New Zealanders commuting, yeah. to be honest. Well, people, you know, this is an aside, but in Christchurch sometimes because I live in Rolleston, yeah. So it is it is a commute, but it's not anywhere near that sort of commute. No, it's a thirty and minute drive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even shorter sometimes. Yeah. And and the reality is, I'm driving by some cows over there and some sheep over there. Like yeah. it's there's mountains in the distance. It's not the grind of the no. the M25 or the you know. Oh, it's the train and the train and the tube for me. And, and yeah. there would be many many times when I wouldn't actually get a seat. Right. The trains would be that busy that I'd be standing up for the whole journey. Wow. Yeah. Which you know that in itself is quite tiring to be honest. Yeah. Um. So I mean, it, but that was you know it was that was what everybody did. You know, that's yeah. how you got to work. And London was that was the centre really for for most people for work in the southeast. Mm-hmm. Um. And if you wanted a job that paid a reasonable salary, that's, that's where you what went. you did. Yeah. 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 So what were some of your first things that you were doing there? Oh, um. What was I doing? I, I worked for a. Um, this, the company was a small engineering uh, design and build company, so they would design stuff and then they would go out to the site and they would build it. Okay. Um, and they were working in the pharmaceutical industry, so I did some work for Boots Pharmaceuticals for a company called Pfizer, um, oh, yeah. um, for others as well, all, all around the UK. And most of what I was doing was basically producing some drawings. And now at the time, AutoCAD didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Computers were very, very rare. Um, we had a telex machine in the office that we used to communicate long distance. Um, we didn't even have a fax machine when I first started work. So, you know, it's kind of very, very early stages, very limited. Of very, very limited. Te- <laughs> well, technology wasn't, it wasn't really any. Yeah, it's um, amazing, you know, isn't it? Uh, it was all the work, all the drawing work was done by hand on a drawing board. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so that's what I did. I did mm-hmm. drawings. And you know, I wasn't, I mean, the thing is, when I look back at school, I hated technical drawing. Right. It was one of the subjects I did. 
absolutely hated it really didn't enjoy it at all and then i've gone into the engineering profession where that's what i do for a living yeah it's kind of weird. well i was going to ask you had you always enjoyed you know art and drawings and buildings and structures and things like had that been part of the reason that you it did hadn't that it been a particular passion uh, yeah. to be honest i think i mean if i look back on it really it, i did just fall into it it wasn't there wasn't a, a particular decision process that i went through beyond my dad saying you need to get a job and yeah. I said I don't know what I want to do and he said yes you're going to do this and that, that was kind of the decision process Yeah, and I don't look back on that with any regret at all to be honest um, you know it was it was a long time ago now um, yeah. and it's not actually done me any harm at all I've, I've travelled the world on this job I've met my wife because of this job I've got three kids that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't met my wife you know so mm-hmm. a lot of positive things have come from that that one decision so yeah. I don't regret it at all Yeah, uh, but you know educational wise um, you know I was I was okay at maths, didn't really enjoy it, I've always struggled a little bit with maths. I've much preferred English and history, those are my kind of favourite subjects mm-hmm. at school. Um, really, really enjoyed reading. I mean, I started off slowly with reading. I, I struggled um, when I was at primary school, I really struggled with reading, but um, when it clicked, I just kind of then the whole world opened up for me as far as books were concerned. And mm-hmm. by the time I was 10 years old, I'd read the Bible cover to cover, I'd read the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and some various heavy books. Yeah. Absolutely loved them. And, you know, been the same ever since. Really love to pick up a book and read. Yeah. Just, it's a great way of escaping. Yeah. You know, if, you, if, the, if the book's got a good storyline and the characters are well thought out, you can you can lose a lot of time reading a book. Yeah. And I find now if I read Lord of the Rings, for example, yeah. it kind of takes me back to when yes. I first read it. Absolutely. You know, like I remember yeah. being 11 or 12, you know, yeah. like reading it like this character Aragorn like really impressed me as a 11 year old like the honor and the yeah yeah, it's pretty cool isn't it bravery and all the rest of it yeah yeah yeah, you come back but I do I I do find it fascinating in people's journeys you know um, there are forks in the road and how is it that people end up on this particular path and in your case it was your father saying he was a strong influence when I was young yeah um, and you know I guess a lot of what I do comes comes from that decision and and that and that the way that I felt that he was as a person you know he he in business terms he you know he was at the time he was uh, running his own business it was reasonably successful um, he had a you know a, he was a pipe fitter welder by by training and he was doing you know, had a, t- a business that was you know doing very very well he had about twenty staff working for him at the time. Mm. Um, and you know, I felt that he he knew what he was doing, so yeah. the, the the opportunity to work in that industry seemed like a good one at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. No, it's good. It's just for the people listening as well. Yeah. I always think the voices that we have are more powerful than we realize yep. in terms of who are the young people that we're in, whether it's our children, our nephews, nieces, you know, yep. the neighbor person down the road. <laughs> What can we help them in terms of life courses, life decisions, and things? Because sometimes I think, as adults and you know, people who are older than a sixteen-year-old, we kind of don't take that active role the way that we could. No, I mean the mentoring. I mean, sort of changing the subject again. Mentoring is something that I've started doing uh, with uh, some students at the University of Canterbury. The last, probably the last two and a half, three years. Oh yeah, I was invited because of the work that I've been doing at the university. I was invited to uh, mentor a cohort of the students in their civil engineering um, uh, classes. Yeah. And I actually have found that to be incredibly satisfying. You know, mm. Actually spending time explaining what I do and why, what, you know, why the industry is the way it is and, and how, how what we do impacts on the environment around us and those kind of things mm-hmm. to, to, to people that are still very much in the very early stages of making a decision about what they want to do. Mm. It's actually quite, you know, it's quite an important role. Um, 
And I don't think that, I think you're right, I don't think we realise, you know, when we get towards you know, the later stages of our career, how much influence we have on the younger people around us mm. and some of the, the way we act, how we, how we treat people, um, how we treat the environment, all of those things mm. kind of rub off on people around you. So, mm. you, you know, you do need to consider what you do and why you do it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can have a negative impact on, on those around you, and that's not the legacy anybody wants to leave, I don't think. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Yeah. So you're in that first job, and you're kind of the yep. at the, the lowest point on the totem pole, I guess. You know, I, I, I you're the 16-year-old six, kid, basically. Yep. Well, I had um, two jobs. One of, them was, one of them was getting the coffees, and the other one was feeding the parking meters. Oh, that, right. was what, that was what I used to do. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really do any engineering to start with. Yeah. Um, they sponsored me to go on a, on a, a, a diploma course that was engineering focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for two years, and then I went and did a higher national diploma. Um, and so I'd been by the time I'd, I'd been there for four years, I think at that point, um, and I was kind of feeling like I'd got everything I could from from them. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not really set up to train me any further because they were more focused on the on the construction side of things and I was right. more interested in the design side of things okay so I then looked at you know what the other alternatives might might be mm-hmm. and initially I, I I joined a very very large um, construction company a company called Hayden Young in the UK mm-hmm. um, I didn't last very long there I was only there for about two or three months and then one of my former colleagues from um, my first company Ingers actually got in touch with me and said he was now working for the BBC um, would I want to come and work for them? Hmm. So I went and crossed to speak to him and to his, and to the people he was working with. Um, and I didn't know, I had no idea at the time. I was twenty years old. Went to the BBC, thinking they'd do broadcasting. Hmm. They had uh, an architectural and civil engineering department with about three hundred and fifty staff in it. Wow! They have, they actually had over two million square meters of property. The BBC in the U- in the UK. And the, the Architectural Civil Engineering Department, ACED, was responsible for all the work on all of those buildings. Hmm. So it was a massive group. Yeah. And they were kind of, you know, all of the work was BBC work. Hmm. And that's, that's probably where I grew up as an engineer, to be hmm. honest. So and what were those buildings being used for? Uh, well, it's everything you can think of. So yeah. television studios, radio right. studios, offices, yep. outside broadcast units, warehouses, um, prop departments. You know, everything that the BBC did, mm-hmm. they had buildings to do it in. Mm-hmm. And all of those buildings were maintained by the BBC. Right. Um, so I was there. How long was I there? I joined in 88. And I think I left them in 94. Hmm. No, it was later than that. Ninety six, about ninety six, I think. Mm, I them. Quite a good chunk of time. Yeah, about eight yeah. years, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was where I grew up as an engineer. I think the biggest thing about that place was because you were working for projects for the client, and the client was also your employer. Like it was kind of all very close together. Right. You couldn't it's walk away in-house. from the projects. Yeah, it was all right. in house. So yeah. you finished a project. Everyone knew who you were. Everyone knew where you worked. If yeah. it didn't work, they came <laughs> and found you. Uh-huh. If, when you know, if you're working for an external consultant, you walk away from that job. You kind of detached from it. But yeah. because I, because I was in house, was never never walked away from the jobs. And I learned I learned a lot from that process. That you know, the finishing of the project, finishing it out, making sure it all works properly, mm-hmm. making sure it's handed over in a nice, clean fashion, mm-hmm. really important. And was it satisfying <coughs> to sort of, I guess. BBC is producing world-class productions and, yeah. you know, Pride and Prejudice and uh, yeah, Doctor World Who. Service and Doctor Who, all yep. these yep. pretty iconic, iconic sort of yep. shows and things. Um, what was that like? Did, did, that was you, great. did you get to, you know, help design 
sets or well, not, not the like sets well. no but but did do television studios and radio studios the okay. set the set designers were another particular trade sure but for the the buildings like the big warehouse buildings and the studios that they were working in yeah certainly did all the work for those mm. um did all the radio one radio two uh, radio studios the continuity studios that they broadcast live radio from right and television center uh, TC1, TC2 was involved in those projects as well, mm-hmm. which is the main TV studios where they do the live broadcasts. Mm-hmm. At the time, I think it was Wogan and Parkinson and things like that were right. broadcast from those studios. Yeah. Um, so kind of high-level Saturday, Saturday night viewing programs. Yeah, yeah, the high ratings. Yeah, very high <laughs> at the time. There was only four channels, so yeah, right. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of choice, really. Yeah. Um, so that must have been, yeah, quite a satisfying thing because some, yeah. some jobs, the point is some jobs you kind of, you're filling in paper and then it goes somewhere else and you don't really see it. But yep. to know that you helped design and build the, the studio yep. where the broadcast is happening and this Absolutely. famous yeah. person is now being interviewed by someone and they're sitting in the room that you helped to create. Right? Was, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it's, it's the same with most of the projects that I do. I think, you know, again, I'm kind of probably going to divert a little bit here. Um, you know, I'd, I worked for the BBC. I then worked for another company uh, called Atelier 10, that is where I met, met my wife. So that was a, a fantastic place to come and work, obviously. Mm. Um, I, they, were, they were very much ahead of their time. So in the early 90s, they, they were building sustainable buildings. That's what they did. Right. Um, the, the guy that runs that business, Patrick Bellew, is, is an amazing person. Um, he's still there now. Um, I think he's just just turned sixty recently. I think, and he's you know he's an incredible engineer. He's mm. he's very very forward thinking and and sustainable design was you know for him was the absolute. That's what you've got to do. Right. That's the minimum standard. Um, and I learned an enormous amount from him. Um, really enjoyed working with him and working on the projects that we worked on. We worked on some you know really interesting projects. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, I think, one my favourite project that I did there was a. A project called the Kimberland Library, which was um, a new a new build library building on the De Montfort University site, which is a you know a fairly famous uh, university in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, the building it was next to was the first sort of naturally ventilated building that had been properly designed in the UK and was being lauded as being a fantastic environmentally sustainable building. Mm-hmm. Um, and the building we were building next to it was you know going to be measured against it, so it's kind of challenging because of that. Mm-hmm. And we ended up. Uh, using a, a more mechanical system to do the ventilation and we ended up with a lower energy requirement in the building we designed than that uh, mm. lauded building because of the way that you know that we used the building fabric to store the energy mm. so it became a thermal store overnight and in the day released the energy mm. and it meant that we had very low energy inputs into the building and it was a very stable environment inside uh, when i first hear the word well, you know working as an engineer and designing yeah. buildings and things I'm thinking more drawing plans and things, but yep. what you're talking about is the next level of actually how are we constructing it? What what materials are we using? Yep. So it's there's yep. a lot more involved. Isn't there it? is, yeah. yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I certainly learned uh, learned from working with Atelier Ten and Patrick is that that, that a building is a system. Mm. It's not lots of different disparate parts. All of the all of the parts work together as a complete system, and if you don't consider them all together, then you can end up with parts of the building fighting other parts of the building. Mm. So it becomes inefficient in terms of the way it works. Mm. It comes inefficient from an energy perspective as well. Occupants find it much more difficult to use the space, so it's it's not satisfactory from a number of factors. Mm. So if you start to think about the complete building as a system and making sure that all parts of the system are working together, you get a much more des- uh, sustainable design solution. Mm. 
you get a better outcome for the occupants as well that they find it um, a more pleasant space to be inside mm-hmm. so that's considering things like daylighting uh, building orientation to make sure you're getting the best use of the of the external environment external shading to stop too much solar gain all of those things mm-hmm. are all part of the design of the building mm-hmm. and they all impact on what i do inside which is the lighting the power right the air conditioning all of those things are impacted by the external environment yeah so if you can minimize those impacts you reduce the energy requirements the building's much more sustainable yeah. So it's kind of that's how it all works together it makes sense yeah i spoke with camille young who's an architect and mm-hmm. she worked for a number of years in europe for some of the leading architecture firms and she described sort of wanting to build a building that made sense in the context of the space, the space it was in yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and yeah. So there was a project in paris that she'd worked on i think and yeah. um, she described you know we first of all we stood back and looked at the bigger picture before we started designing the building yeah. you know what i mean yeah so i think we, as engineers we kind of fall into the trap of, of thinking we know the answer before we've even asked the question right and we also tend to think that you know we have to we have to build this mechanical system or this electrical system mm-hmm. and don't really look at the bigger picture don't look back step back and say how's this building going to work mm-hmm. you know how are they going to use it what's the minimum requirements we need to meet to make sure it achieves what they want to do inside the space mm. and then start designing the systems mm. you know, usually we just want to jump in and fix yeah. stuff and yeah. build stuff. Well, i'd love to unpack that a little bit because how do you let's say you've got a client today who's mm-hmm. coming comes to you how yep. do you elicit or get that information like what is it you're actually going to be doing in here? Because I can imagine that does have huge impacts on oh, how does, you yeah. design the space. Um, and, but the client themselves may not have it, a clear picture A lot either. of the time they don't. A lot of the time, yeah. you know, clients will be one-time clients. Mm. It's the only time they've ever done a project. Mm-hmm. So they don't really know what they're doing. Um, and that, you know, they know, they, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. They know what they do, mm. but they don't know how to build a project to help them do what they do. Right. So the, uh, there's, there's a real focus at the front end of any project to actually build a brief. And, and that requires time. It requires ability to communicate mm. and ability to, to exchange ideas mm. you know, with your client, whoever they may be, about how they work, what, you know, what systems they need in, inside the space. Are there any particular requirements around temperature and humidity that they need to maintain? All of those questions we need to ask to mm-hmm. be able to start thinking about the type of systems they're going to use. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that can take some time to get that right. But I think you know, it's true of any, of any job. If you don't get the brief right at the start, then every output from that brief is going to be bad. Mm-hmm. So you need to spend the time getting that briefing process right. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what you do after that if the brief is wrong. Yeah, it, well, I'm thinking it's exactly echoing what I do as a lawyer. Yeah. You know, I need to understand what the client actually wants to achieve yep. before I start drafting the agreement because Absolutely. it's yep. going to be a mess. <laughs> yeah. if There'll be a lot of questions <laughs> and, and nobody will be very happy with the outcome exactly. and no one will want to pay the other person for what they've done. And you know, So you know, that, that initial briefing period is probably the most important of any project that I've worked on. Yeah. So um, how do you think of a building then that you're coming to design or build? Like, it sounds almost like you're thinking of it in an organic way that it, it's guess, almost a living yeah. and breathing it sort is. of entity yeah. on well, its I mean, own. It, you know? even, even, I mean, beyond a, a building, you know, if you, for example, if you look at a university campus, a university campus is, is a connected series of buildings. Mm-hmm. That in its, that's a very organic place. Mm-hmm. And again, if you're designing systems on that scale, mm-hmm. then you need to be thinking on that scale. You can't design every individual building and try and make them all work together without thinking about how they, they are all going to work together as a total system. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you scale it down, it works the same on the buildings as well. So it's just really 
Now, understanding that, that whatever you design is going to impact on what somebody else is doing and having those conversations early, seeing what their requirements are and trying to make sure that what you're doing doesn't compromise too much. Always, there's always going to be some compromise in design. There mm-hmm. always has to be. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're forcing somebody else to compromise all of the time and you're never compromising, then the, design's comp- the design itself is going to be compromised. Yeah. So it's, yeah. That's, that's when I think I spoke to you about the silos, that, that silo mentality that we have in the construction industry kind of drives that type of approach where mm-hmm. you do your bit mm-hmm. and you defend your bit mm-hmm. and you don't really care what everybody else does and you end up with a with a substandard product at the yeah. at the outset. Well, I can understand how it happens. So let's let's go there and talk yep. about that because yep. I'm really curious about that. But just to frame it, I can understand completely where well that person's in charge of the electrics and yep. that person's in charge of the water and that person's in charge of the, the ventilation. You know, the, or yeah, the, yep. and and you yep. kind of divvy it up that way. So yep. just talk to us about silos and what, what yep. you've seen. Well, I mean, I think it, the first thing I'll say is that there are there's lots of specialisms. So the, the building services, which is what I do, is, is covers a, m- a massive range of different things. Mm-hmm. You can't have one engineer that can do all of them well. You know, you, you get to a point where you can talk about them. I'm at that, I'd like to say I'm at that point where I can talk about a wide range of what we do, mm-hmm. but I certainly wouldn't consider myself competent to design everything that a building services engineer does because it's such a wide range of things. So you do need the specialisms. Mm-hmm. The issue really is that when those specialisms then become so isolated from one another, the communication doesn't happen between them, then you'd start making poor design decisions in a project. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I try to do is I try to make sure that the team's Aren't, it's not a mechanical team, an electrical team, a team, a hydraulics team, an audiovisual team, an ICT team. It's a team for the project. Mm. So whichever disciplines are required on that project are all working together. We have regular meetings. We try and talk to one another. We make sure we're coordinating from an early stage. Mm-hmm. Try and break down those silos uh, mm. because it, it is uh, it does compromise the design process. Mm. It makes it take longer. It makes it cost more money, and it gives you a poorer outcome. So it's not a sensible way to design. Mm. And, and beyond that, you know, we have the architects, the structural engineers, the civil engineers, transport engineers, project managers, quantity surveyors. There's a massive group of people that's involved in any project. Yeah. And if you're all in your own corner, not really talking to one another, the outcome's never going to be very good. Yeah. Yes. So um, I'd love to talk more about your business and what you're doing today and, okay. and how you actually help clients. But before we do that, we're yep. here in New Zealand. We kind of got up to you were working for BBC and working yep. in the UK. Yep. Like, how did you end up over here? Uh, well, okay. I went When I left left the BBC, went to Atelier 10, which is where I met my wife, Chrissy. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we had a kind of a world, whirlwind romance, I think. We met in May of 1996. Mm-hmm. We're engaged in October of 1996 and married in November, in, sorry, in July of 1997. So right. we kind of, we knew. We within a year. Knew, yeah. Within a year, we were all, we were absolutely. And I think... I left Atelier 10 and then I actually moved into uh, another consultancy in London initially for two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, found that to be quite difficult. I, I had a, a particularly difficult uh, manager in that consultancy um, and we clashed a lot and made me quite ill. It was around about, it was actually around about 9-11 time that this that I kind of made a decision to, to leave because I found myself in hospital when 9-11 happened from work-related stress. Right. And I was watching the Twin Towers from a hospital bed and thinking, this is just not right. I don't want to be doing this anymore. Um, made the decision to, to change my uh, my work. Um, went to work for a smaller consultancy practice closer to home. So I, I took a pay cut to do that as well. So it was kind of, it was more, I was 
slowly learning that my lifestyle was not actually a good lifestyle. Right. You know, I spent a long time commuting every day, didn't see much of my very young children at the time, didn't see much of my wife. All of those relationships were suffering as a result, mm -hmm. and I made the decision to try and uh, do something a bit different. Mm -hmm. And I went to work for a, a, another small consultancy in Kent, which was um, actually uh, focused on healthcare work. And that's when I first started getting involved with healthcare projects, mm -hmm. which I found to be incredibly satisfying projects, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, I then went on, and I, you know, I, I then spent, I think, three or four years working for those guys, and then I decided that. I wanted another challenge um, and an opportunity came up to go and work in the Middle East. Um, mm. And it was uh, quite a senior role, a technical director role for a large multinational consultancy um, and jumped at the opportunity to go and try that out. Unfortunately, my timing was terrible. I arrived in uh, Dubai in October of 2008 and the GFC landed there in November of 2008. Right. <laughs> and it changed my life <laughs> quite significantly and not for the better. Uh -huh. um, so I spent, I think I spent, I managed to last two years. So I left the Middle East in, in 2010. But the, the six months after the GFC landed, my job was basically making people redundant. And I spent, I laid off, I don't know, a lot of people, 30 people a month for six months. Um, was you know, so that gets to be a bit sore destroying. It was terrible. Yeah, it was a really. I mean, it was horrible for them. It was. It was horrible for me. Um, it was a very soul destroying experience. And I, I, so I, I decided that after that six month period that I needed a, a change of environment. Moved to another company, um, another consultancy in the Middle East, and stayed with them for about eighteen months. Um, at the end of the 18 months period, the GFC was still very bad in, in Dubai at the time. Um, they actually made me redundant, and uh, I came back to the UK trying to find a job in the UK spent about four or five months looking couldn't find a job mm -hmm. and I should say at this point my wife Chrissy is actually from Wellington from New Zealand oh okay um, which is why we ended up coming to New Zealand yeah right. um, so I spent four or five months looking for an opportunity in the UK didn't get any bites at all mm -hmm. starting to get a bit depressed thinking that I was of little value because nobody wanted to employ me mm -hmm. and then an opportunity came up in Wellington in New Zealand um, with a, a consultancy over here um, and I again jumped um, thought it would be a good time to try New Zealand that the UK was in a bad shape at the time mm -hmm. um, and the kids were kind of young enough that it wasn't going to be too big an impact on them we thought mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. um, and Chrissy and I had discussed that we wanted to at some point come back to New Zealand so that we could spend some time uh, here where she grew up right. and so the kids could see where she came from as well um, so that was the decision and we came to Wellington in um, December of 2010 mm -hmm. um, we Stayed in Wellington, I think, for the first three years that we were here in New Zealand, mm -hmm. and then moved down to Christchurch because I was offered an opportunity to run the office in Christchurch for the business that I was working for in Wellington. Okay, and it's it was a step up for me in the in the career in the sort of the career path, and I thought that seemed like a good idea. So mm -hmm. I came down to Christchurch. Actually, found the city of Christchurch much nicer place to live than Wellington. Mm -hmm. um, people were easier to get along with, and the city was a nicer place than Wellington, we thought at the time, even though it was post-quake and there was still a lot to be done. Mm -hmm. And there was also, because there was a lot to be done, I work in the construction industry, there was a good opportunity there as well. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I remember meeting you, it would have been probably a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. or something like that, and you were about to launch into your own 
initiative. Yes. Because yes. um, working as a lawyer, I often meet with people at that early stage, which I really enjoy. You yeah. know, it's the startup phase. Everything's new. We need to get terms and conditions. We need to think about how this is going to work. Contracts but and all sorts of other things. All yeah. that stuff. Yeah. But just thinking about that time, yeah. um, what was it that made you realize, okay, I, I actually want to launch out here. I'm going to push oh, the ship right. out into the ocean. Uh, well, again, I, for the second time in my career, I was made redundant. Um, and... Um, it, it gave me an opportunity to, to think about what I wanted to do next. You know, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. I'm 51 this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, having my own business has been something I've talked about for a long time, probably 15 plus years. Mm-hmm. Keep talking about it, never did anything about it. Right. Um, and then uh, made redundant and uh, sort of sat down and thought, well, if I'm going to do something, now's the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very, very fortunate in that uh, when I was made redundant, I phoned the university and told them what was going on, and they immediately said, well, come and talk to us because we might have some work for you. Hmm. And that was the first step, really. If, you know, if I've got a client on day one, then you know, it's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, so I went across and talked to the university, talked about what they needed, um, agreed that I could offer what they were looking for, mm-hmm. and, and that was the start, really. Mm. Um, and what yeah. was it like for you? Because I'm always keen for listeners who maybe are thinking of starting their own thing or, yep. you know, entrepreneurs to learn from other people. What was it like the first few months? And Terrifying, yeah. I think, <laughs> if I'm honest. I mean, I, I think it's, it's equal, it was equal parts terrifying, exciting, exhilarating, mm-hmm. um, and, and fulfilling. You know, I, I suddenly had control of everything and I was suddenly responsible for everything. Right. And if I made a decision, it happened. And all of those things, it, it put me under a lot of pressure personally because all of a sudden, if if something had to happen, I had to do it. And I, you know, I'd been supported by a wide range of people throughout my career. I'd always worked with a large company, or with, you know, there's always been other staff. When I was on my own, having to work out how to work the internet and get my website up and running and sort out how to do invoicing and all of these things that just happened when I was somewhere else, yeah. I suddenly realised actually this isn't. This isn't a one-man job. Mm. You need support. You need. Why did I speak to you guys? Because I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert in that area. I mm. couldn't possibly write my own contracts. Mm. It would be stupid of me to do that. Mm. But equally, I don't know how to do a tax return. Mm. I'm not. I'm not going to be very good at doing my GST. I don't know how to set up a website. I don't know how to do IT support. All of these other bits and pieces. So I've had to spend the first few months spending time finding other people that I could work with that would provide those additional services that I couldn't do for myself. Mm-hmm. And I also quickly made the decision that, you know, whilst some of it I could have certainly learned how to do, I would have spent a lot of time learning how to do it and it wouldn't have been the best use of my time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm good at what I do. I really want to focus on what I do mm-hmm. and not spend time trying to learn other skills mm-hmm. um, because it's not going to add any value to the process. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it, it, it's quite frustrating and it would be a distraction from what I do as a job. So I, I felt it, the, the right decision for me, it won't be the right decision for everybody, but the right decision for me was to find somebody to do my bookkeeping for me, find somebody to do my website for me, find somebody to set up all my templates mm. for me, find yourselves to do the, the contracts for my staff and other mm. bits and pieces. For, you know, Actually find other people to do those things. Yeah. It makes sense. I think the <coughs> thing is it does involve a little bit of vulnerability, saying, actually, I can't do everything. Yeah. I'm going to outsource it to this person or this person. And yeah. um, and I think there is a tendency 
when you're starting out, you want to save money, so you don't want to spend the money but to get it. Really, but but you again, you actually are spending a lot of time, which is your money. Yeah, you know, exactly. When, when you're when, what I do as a consultant, I sell my time. That's all I sell. Mm-hmm. If I'm spending eight hours trying to work out how to get my website up and running, that's eight hours I'm not actually earning any money. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's the way that I looked at it. You know, I could I could spend a long time doing all these things, and mm-hmm. I could probably get there, and it would probably be okay. Mm-hmm. But every hour I spend doing that is an hour I'm not doing my job. Yeah, yeah. And you know, earning the money to pay somebody else is easier than trying to learn it to do. So I found anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not going to be the case for everybody. There's going to be some people out there that want to do everything themselves, and that's absolutely fine. But mm. I think if you're not sure, guessing is probably the worst thing to do. Yeah, yeah. It's about learning where the efficiencies are. Well, learning your limits. Yeah. yeah. Learning, you know, knowing. I mean, that's something I'd say throughout my career. I've learned very early. Is I know what I know, and I know what I don't know, and mm. I don't try and guess. And you know, when I'm employing people, when I'm talking to them in an interview, I say, I ask them a question. I say, I don't want you to guess. If you don't know the answer, there's no shame in not knowing the answer. Mm-hmm. Much rather you ask me a question. Much rather we had a conversation about it than you tried to guess an answer. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want you doing that with clients either. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't, if the client asks you a question, and you don't know the answer. Don't try and guess because right. all you're going to do is embarrass yourself mm-hmm. or embarrass somebody else. Mm-hmm. So they're right. You know. I agree. It's always better to admit that you don't know it, but you know who knows the answer. Absolutely. Right? You'll be able to find it. <laughs> I can it. get it yeah. for you. Yeah, I'll get back yeah. to you. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. So um, just putting on the time travel ability here, if mm-hmm. you could go back to the, uh, let's say the first meeting that we had, you know, yeah. is there any advice that you would give yourself looking back over the last year? Um, I think probably my biggest piece of advice to me would be to back myself more. Mm. I was I, I lacked a bit of confidence initially, um, and I was a bit indecisive about a few things that that I probably shouldn't have been. Mm. Um, and you know, recognizing that actually what I'm doing has some value in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got multiple clients now. I've you know I've learned a lot in that first year of trading that that. Um, now, if you back yourself, and and the other thing I guess is is stick to your, stick to what you're good at as well is probably the biggest lesson. You know, I've I've very much learned that you know I, I'm not a detail person. I'm much more a bigger picture person. Mm-hmm. I need people around me that are detail people because what some of what I do requires a lot of detail, mm-hmm. um, and I've learned that very quickly. Um, so again, you know, it's kind of again, yeah, really stick to what you know, mm-hmm. play to your strengths, don't try and fix your weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Because you can spend a lot of time doing that, and it won't necessarily get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably, yeah, probably the biggest piece of advice I'd give me. Yeah, no, that's good. It's yeah. always good to think through, you know, particularly backing yourself, right? Like yeah. just having the confidence, I can do this. Yeah. 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 Um, and what what sort of projects are you taking on now, and and what does that involve? Oh, we're doing we're doing lots of different projects actually. We've got um, four different projects for the University of Canterbury. We're doing. Um, uh, a clerk of works role, which is a is a kind of an old school role that um, was very common in the construction industry when I first started, which is basically somebody who goes out on site acts as an extra pair of eyes for the client, checking the quality of the work as it goes in. Okay. Um, one of the things the universities identified is that they've had a lot of problem with closing out projects. There's been real issues with the quality during the construction process. They've had a lot of defects on the projects. Mm-hmm. Things not been handed over as they should be, and they were trying to address that in this clerk of works role. They're trialing it. Oh, we're trialing it for them on one project out there to see if it actually does add some value. Mm-hmm. I've got a meeting on that next week. Hopefully we can demonstrate that it's added some value. Um, 
and then a lot then the main project that I've been working on for them is, is um, looking at their energy provide energy provision across the campus so that's where I'm talking about all of the buildings being connected they've got a central energy center and we're looking at how that energy is provided and how we could better improve the sustainability of that system mm-hmm. and what we've recognized on that one as well is that there's a lot of work to do to the buildings because New Zealand's unfortunately not very good at building buildings right the quality of the building stock is pretty low um, if you look at it in terms of UK standards the you know, the insulation, the glazing, the quality of the build is quite poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, they're energy-intensive buildings. So we need a lot of energy to keep them hot and a lot of energy to keep them cold, mm-hmm. which can be, you know, it's very wasteful. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at how we can help improve the building stock as well to, to improve their energy profile. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another fairly significant So what are, some, what are some things that you can do to improve efficiency and energy usage in buildings? Well, I mean, the, in, if you're looking domestically, the... the the probably the biggest thing is actually insulation and glazing the the, mm-hmm. the glazing quality that is used in New Zealand even if it's double glazed it's usually not thermally broken which means that you end up getting a lot of condensation on the inside face of the glass when it's cold and the problem with the condensation is it creates damp and mold which then becomes a health issue right um, and alongside that you'll find that most of the houses are not very well ventilated so the condensation that forms just stays there it doesn't get removed mm. or if you're in a house that's that's got proper uh, thermally broken glazing, proper ventilation, you get no condensation, those, that health issue goes away. And also, if you've got better insulation in your walls and your roof, you tend to find that the building temperature stays more stable, it's more comfortable to live in. Um, so that, that's kind of on a domestic scale, but mm-hmm. this, it, all you do is scale that up when you're looking at a new new build building. Mm-hmm. The building standard H1 that we use in New Zealand for insulation and glazing and the like is, is quite a low mark. It's the minimum required but people tend to aim just to achieve the minimum um, because of cost mm-hmm. um, and not really, I mean, the whole of life conversation is a other, another whole subject. That, you know, when you're designing a building, you should be looking at the whole of life cost, which basically means how much does it cost to design it, build it, operate it, demolish it and dis- dispose of it. That's the whole of the life of the building. Right. And if you design a building cheaply, build it cheaply, it will cost you a lot more money to operate and a lot more money to demolish and uh, dispose of at the end of its life. Mm-hmm. And what you tend to find is that we sp- focus a lot on that upfront piece, the capital cost at the start, mm-hmm. which is only probably about 15 to 20% of the actual whole of life cost. Right. And we don't focus on the 85 to, uh, 80 to 85% of what it's actually gonna cost to run it. Mm-hmm. So you, you can waste a lot of money by not focusing on that part mm. um, and you know the energy part of that is enormous mm. um, and you know there's a lot of talk at the moment that this cli- whole climate change thing is all about the energy use mm. um, and what, how we use energy so there's, there's it's a big focus for a lot of people at the moment I think mm. Mm. and I guess it's what we talked about in terms of a project just getting clear at the beginning what the scope even is yes so that you can then design the right building and absolutely um, you know but also having those conversations early with the client about their aspirations around sustainability and energy and those kind of things because I mean ultimately if it's if it's a client that's that's going to be using the building for its whole life mm-hmm. they should really be focused on its whole of life cost mm-hmm. if it's somebody that's a developer that's going to flick it on to somebody else else they don't actually really care usually it's not a big focus for them the capital cost is important because they want to make a huge profit on their sell Mm. that doesn't mean you shouldn't do a good design but it does change the focus a little bit yeah Um, and it's so it's understanding that from your client is important Mm. for sure Mm. and how long you know like if we're thinking about a building Mm -hmm. how how long would you be thinking in your head 
okay, how, how many decades is this going to be here? Like, well, well, buildings, generally speaking, you'd be looking at something like a 40 to 50 year life okay. on a building. Um, and the systems that go in them would depend on the system. An audio visual system, you're probably saying two years because the technology changes so quickly. Right. Um, but a heating or ventilation system, you know, the, the, that should last almost the same life as the building. Mm. So it, you know, it, it will vary depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at the whole of life, if you're looking at, you know, that's the other thing you need to ask your client, what is the life expectancy of this project for you? Is right. it a 20-year life, a 30-year life, a 40-year life? Because yeah. that impacts on the whole of life as well. Yeah. It's interesting, and this is kind of a rabbit hole to talk about, but with the Christchurch <laughs> earthquakes mm-hmm. and, the, and the building stock that came down yes. <laughs> because it was built like a hundred and something years ago. Yep. Um, presumably it wasn't very well insulated. It wasn't really up to standard. Um, some of it wasn't. Some of it Some of it was reasonable, but you know, there was a few buildings that were pretty poor. I mean, there's still quite a, a lot of housing stock in New Zealand that isn't very good mm. um, in particular. Um, most of the office standard, you know, the, the H1 standard is, is okay. It's not brilliant, um, but you, it's easy to do better. Uh, in a new build it's much more difficult to do better in an existing building because right. you have to start taking things apart to put better insulation in mm-hmm. um, but you know it's it, again for a new project it's it's you know, the, there should be more I think personally I think there should be more thought about the whole of life and and the sustainability sustainability of the building itself mm-hmm. from an energy perspective from a materials perspective as well mm-hmm. and I guess it's about the outcomes from the building itself isn't yeah. it the impact that the building will have on yeah. the environment well this this thing when you start talking about embedded carbon and other things like that I mean it can go again another rabbit hole about how what is really what is a green building um, you know we talk about natural ventilation and other things but we don't talk about where the steelwork comes from that you built the building with or where the where the facade materials have come from or mm. how much energy it's taken to build the elements that you then put into the building all of those things actually are part of the embedded carbon footprint of a building yeah and are there any innovative things that you've seen in relatively recent years that other people may not have seen in terms of building a building of the future um i think well there's a lot more focus now on timber construction rather than steel construction i think you know cross laminated timber is or clt something that's talked about quite commonly mm-hmm. um and that that's more a more sustainable material i would say um Technologies that I'm I'm involved with from my perspective, there's the, what we call a heat pump, which is basically a, a refrigerant cycle machine that generates either heating or cooling. Mm-hmm. Um, the technology in that is getting better and better. Uh, it used to be quite um, difficult to get a decent output from those machines, but more recently we're starting to get to a point where the output is sufficient that you can actually start using these on larger scale projects and, and they become more viable, which means we can get away from what we call combustion technology where you're burning wood chip or coal or gas or diesel mm-hmm. to generate heat you start using this um, uh, heat pump which will use electricity for the generation of the heat mm. so it's a more a cleaner um, material or cleaner process rather mm. i would have thought as you know solar panels and that technology improves like maybe you could embed them within the outer surface well, there's there's, there's already a there are already materials so there's already roofing materials that are embedded with solar panels that so you okay. can get for electricity generation um the challenge with the solar panels is that they are still quite an expensive technology mm. and new zealand the electricity is quite cheap so if you're doing a, a payback calculation how long how long would i need the solar panel before mm-hmm. it's actually paid for itself 
it can be quite a long period of time and you know it can almost be the life of the panel before you've actually got the money back right which effectively means it's not actually it's not financially viable mm. uh, people would look at um, a payback period of two to three years typically on a system like that to say if it's paid back within two to three years then it's a viable solution okay. if it might go out to five years but if you're looking at 10 years plus then it's not really viable because you're getting close to the point where you're going to have to replace the piece of kit mm. before you've actually earned the money from the savings in mm. the energy. So it's 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 quite a it's almost a fashion thing now. You do put the solar panels on because it's the right thing to do, not because it's economically viable to do so. Right. I think there will be a point where it is economically viable to do so, but it's not there yet. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And what I love, well, there's pictures of the future. You know, like mm-hmm. in 2060, here's a green city. Yep. And there's trees growing out of the roof, and you know, like you can imagine what the future might hold. Yep. But I imagine there's a lot of. Uh, well, they tried. To, they tried to build a, a zero carbon city in the Middle East, a, pl- a city called Mazdar, which okay. was supposed to be designed so that it, whatever carbon it produced, it also absorbed, so that the the, the, the whole city was effectively carbon zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and found that there were too many limitations on the technology. I mean, they did proceed with a, with a lot of the project, and it. it identified a lot of technologies that could be very useful mm-hmm. um but you know it, it, you know the, there's certainly people thinking about that mm. the green city it's it's certainly a very it's not far away i don't think yeah um, yeah, the, yeah yeah and we talked before just about the building and how you think of it as almost a living creature or mm-hmm. a, you know breathing in and out and ventilation and all that i'm just curious you know with the advent of technology and ai yep. and systems that get integrated in like I can I can foresee, and I'm sure you can comment, you know, in the future, I might be driving home and just speak and say, please, uh, you know, warm up the living room to that's X already, degrees. That's already and, possible. Right. I mean, that is, I mean, the technology is already there for that kind of uh, interface with your home. So mm-hmm. you can have an application on your phone that allows you to turn your heating system on and off, turn your spa pool on and off, mm-hmm. whatever you want it to do. Mm-hmm. So home automation is very advanced, and, and that sort of technology is in, in lots of developments now. So that's mm-hmm. already there. So just to finish my thought, just with the, you know, calling ahead to warm up the room and things, yeah. like, do, do you foresee a point where the building will almost take on an essence or an ai reality <laughs> i don't of know i think that i think there's a there's a possibility that it will yeah. i mean there's because what i'm thinking of is like oh the building itself is is almost has a nervous system and connected and it can yeah. say um we we've got a problem in this room over here and we need well, maintenance. we have we have a, a what we call a building management system already in mm-hmm. most buildings which is a, a, a digital controls system right which has sensors all over the place control valves pumps and everything else that are used to move energy around the building okay. and that already senses when things are going wrong mm-hmm. um so you you're starting to get that I mean, that's already exists but the the next step I guess is that not only does it sense that something's going wrong, it knows how to fix it. Mm. It sends an autonomous robot out to change a filter or whatever yeah. it may be to do. Them. So that's the next step, probably, from where we're at at the moment. Mm. But those, you know, the, the, you look at hospital technology nowadays and, and the, the level of digitization you've got in hospitals now, where you, know, you don't actually have an X-ray anymore. You take a computerized image from an X-ray machine, and that is then sent straight to the monitor by your bed, and then your doctor looks at the monitor and sees the X-ray. You don't have a a film yeah that's you know that's way gone all your medical records are now digitized um you're looking at having autonomous vehicles that are feeding patients so the food is got brought around on a little robot in some hospitals in europe now and in the us um, mm. that sort of thing's starting to happen over here mm. um it's, you know, so all of this digitization is is t- 
taking the you know, it's taking affecting over. everything isn't it it is it, yeah the, the fascinating thing i think is you know when you and i are gone in a hundred years from now and our great-grandchildren are listening to this podcast potentially <laughs> and and they're and they're going wow look at what they thought back in 2019 you know like what will it be in a hundred years what will your job involve well, when you're designing a building when you can actually build in a nervous system to the building itself i guess the way i the way i'd answer that question is if you look went back to when i started work in 1984 mm -hmm. um, a prophetic year for a number of reasons um <laughs> that i didn't have a mobile phone i didn't have a computer on my desk we didn't have the internet mm. it didn't exist email didn't exist mm. you know that the amount of change that there's been in a relatively short period of time is you know it's beyond comprehension really mm. um to, to imagine that you've now got a mobile phone that's more powerful than than any computer you had 10 years ago let alone 20 years ago mm. that you can talk to anybody on the planet at any time on a video screen that you can hold in your hand that's that's normal commonplace you mm. wouldn't think anything of that 10 years ago that wouldn't have been possible mm. 15 years ago you'd have been looking at science fiction film yeah so that the pace of change is enormous and and i think the biggest challenge that we face is keeping up with the pace of change mm. and recognizing the impact that change is having on us and on our society mm. Um, you know the, the the whole internet kids that we've got that are totally connected to social media and never really talk to a real person mm. there's a real problem there that i don't think we fully understand the extent of that mm. um, and you know the, the way we use technology is up to us mm. but we're not i don't think we're using it very sensibly at the moment yeah that's interesting it'll be yeah it, it will be fascinating to watch in a couple of decades you know mm. i can imagine that um potentially a building will have an uh, whatever the equivalent of instagram is at that point and and be like today's event here's a photo and you'd be yep. able to follow the um the building itself well, we've know. got <laughs> well, we've got some we've got some you know actually that's probably not a bad idea in some <laughs> cases but we've got some uh, technology now where where you can have a display in the lobby that tells you what the building's doing so you can go right. in there if you're if you're promoting sustainability for example it will tell you how much energy the building's using and, and what you know what it's been doing to manage manage the energy in the side of the space or you can mm. provide any all sorts of information from the building itself mm. so there's a lot of that digitization is already there yeah. it's just how you use the information and there's a lot of talk about the um the the, the next oil being data um, and big data is is you know something that people still don't really know how we can use all the information that we're getting mm -hmm. um and it's it's there to be used it's there to to refine the processes that we use for design and for construction and for for the way we live our lives mm -hmm. but until people fully understand the extent of the data and what it can be used for mm. you're not using it to its best extent i don't think mm. um, and, and then you have the the lines of privacy and drawn then you, you know I, I used to i did a succumbent at a company and one of the things that they they could track with loyalty cards you know what your purchase was yeah. and so therefore if i it just as a theoretical thing if i went in and bought a newspaper and a moro bar yeah. and a coca-cola then if they offered me a discount on something related to that i'd be more likely to to take it you yeah. know so it's the whole google that, thing listening data. to you all of the time thing yeah. i mean that's you know there's there's all sorts of moral issues there that i think are still being worked out as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. but you know the reality is that that data exists mm -hmm. it, and, and people have access to it and you know it's you know it's a difficult place i think at the moment there's there's a, all sorts of issues around the american elections for example about how that data was being used and how it's being used to manipulate us every day and we don't really realize it yeah. now targeted ads on facebook and instagram and other things that you, you say a word in a conversation and then the next time you open up facebook that something related to that word appears on your feed and it's like mm -hmm. 
well that's really rather a coincidence isn't it but it mm. happens quite regularly and it's and you know that's what these software this software is designed to do mm. it yeah. is all about selling something yeah unfortunately yeah, yeah. well that's right or wrong <laughs> well yeah, yeah big brother was, is definitely uh, watching yes. yeah yeah it was appropriate year to start maybe <laughs> probably was yes <laughs> well it's been great talking with you steve and, and you, what we'll do you. is um put some links in the show notes so cool. if people are interested they can find out more about your business and what you're okay. doing and um and if you think of anything else people would be interested in let me know I and, will do. Um, but yeah i just want to say thanks so much for coming no on the show Thanks. Thanks very much. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Steve. I know for me, there were several things that stood out, and I just loved hearing his life journey and also those reflections on designing buildings. If you enjoyed it, then check out some of the earlier ones in the back catalog as well. And there's a lot more content at theseeds.nz. Until next time. Mm-hmm.